Here we are at the Feast of Tabernacles, a time that looks forward to a world very different than the world we find ourselves in today, a world that will be changed. But how will it be changed? What will bring about such a change? We also see in the Bible, in the book of Psalms, a Psalm of David, Psalm 25, And in verse 14, there's an interesting promise. And the promise reads, The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. It's an interesting promise, and that's going to be the theme of this sermon. A secret. A secret by anyone's definition is a mystery. Human beings are generally interested in mysteries. The thought of the unknown captivates the mind and the imagination, and the curiosity brought about by secrets and puzzles often drives men to great lengths, often to overcome huge obstacles and dangers in order to solve a mystery. In the 1600s, there lived a man in England who was to do things that would change the world, perhaps enable more changes than any other person of whom we have record. This man has been referred to by many scientists or even psychologists as possibly the most intelligent human being of whom we have record in historical times. The communication experts who deal in fiber optic transmissions, that which enables the internet, the astronomers using their great reflecting telescopes, all owe the technology to the work of this remarkable individual. Astronauts traveling to the moon and back, traveling to the space station, NASA engineers landing a probe on Mars, all refer to the calculations that this man made over 400 years ago. Even chemists refer back to his work in alchemy, as it was known in those days, uh, to find out some of the discoveries that he was making. Modern mathematics was also defined by this individual, You know, who, when he was faced with problems, problems of constant changes of rate, he realized the mathematics of his time was insufficient to enable him to solve these issues. So instead of giving up, he developed a mathematical system that he called fluxions, that we now know as um, derivatives, which eventually was expanded into differential calculus, making modern structures, buildings, bridges, aircraft, all possible. The man's name, of course, as some of you have already guessed, is Sir Isaac Newton, after whom Newtonian physics is named. As far as the development of calculus goes, there has long been a debate who actually developed it. The great German mathematician Leibniz was also heavily involved in this area. Leibniz and Newton pulled these ideas from earlier mathematicians into a coherent and nearly simultaneous invention of calculus. Newton, however, was the first to apply calculus to general physics, and while Leibniz uh, created much of the notation that we use, it was Newton who blended this this new technique into actually solving problems in the real world. You know, Newton loved a mystery. 
He enjoyed problems. He could solve the most complex of them with amazing speed. But there was one problem, one mystery that Newton could not solve. Even though he devoted most of his life and his enormous intellectual talent to this problem. And that mystery that plagued Newton until the day he died was what was God's purpose, plan, and what was his time frame? Newton wrote much on science and mathematics, including the two greatest works in scientific literature, Mathematica Principia and Optics. When modern science want to solve a problem in engineering or design something related to the matters of mechanics, in many areas of physics, they still rely on Newton. Such complex problems to him were almost nothing. Great mathematicians would send him problems that were designed to be nearly unsolvable, and Newton would solve them very, very quickly. In one such case, Newton looked at the problem that both Leibniz and Bernoulli, a great Italian mathematician, were stymied and simply gave an answer within five to ten minutes without writing anything down. When pressed for a formal written solution, he sort of grumbled and wrote it out before dinner. He had great ability. And yet the problem of what God was up to frustrated him his entire life. Do you realize that Isaac Newton wrote far more about religion than he ever wrote about science. And much of his scientific work, especially his book, Optics, on the study of light, and his work on the universal law of gravitation, was published. He had discovered them earlier, but he published it for a reason, to show that God was in constant control of the universe and that forces were not inherent within matter but resulted from energy placed there by God through his spirit. Newton threw himself into decades of Bible study, studying it in Hebrew and Greek, becoming quite an expert in these languages. In many ways, his wisdom grew, but he could not solve the question about what God's plan was and what God's timeline was. The study of the Bible was as thorough as it is possible to be. Newton was once accosted by a small group of men who challenged the idea that there was a God and were even raising evolutionary notions in the 1660s. And here Newton responded with fury and indignation. And he wrote a short paper that you can find on the Internet. You just simply type in the Newton Project in a search engine and you can find all of his work translated into English from Latin. And he wrote a paper called A Short Scheme of True Religion to respond to these charges. I'll just give you a short quote. It's quite amazing what a human being is able to discover when they put their mind to it. He writes, and I quote, Godliness consists in knowledge, love, and worship of God. Humanity and love, righteousness, and good offices toward man. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it, that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And, of course, he's quoting Matthew chapter 22. And then he writes, The first is enjoined in the first four commandments of the Decalogue, 
and the second and the last six. He understood that. And then he writes, opposite to this, opposite to righteousness, is atheism. Atheism is so senseless and so odious to mankind that it never had many professors. What would he say today, I wonder? And Newton goes on, this man that we put on a pedestal scientifically, but no one quotes him here today. He writes, can it be by accident that all birds, beasts, and men have their right side and left side shaped exactly alike? Just two eyes and no more, one on either side of the face. Just two ears on either side of the head and a nose with two holes and no more between. One mouth under the nose and either two forelegs or two wings or two arms, two legs on the hips, one on either side and no more. From whence arises this uniformity in all their outward shapes, but from the counsel and contrivance of an author? Whence is it that the eyes of all sorts of living creatures are transparent to the very bottom and the only transparent members in the body, having on the outside a hard transparent skin and within transparent juices, with having on the outside a transparent skin and transparent juices with a crystalline lens in the middle and a pupil before the lens, all of them so truly shaped and fitted for vision that no artist can mend them. Did blind chance know there was light and the properties of refraction? No, Newton understood these things had to be created. He goes on and says, these and such like considerations always have and ever will prevail with man to believe there is a being who has made all things and has all things in his power and who is therefore to be feared. We see a man who, through applying his own understanding and logic, realized there is indeed a God. In his study, Newton wrote a major paper on the false doctrine of the Trinity, one not published in his lifetime, but one that the church refused to confront. They would not take Newton on in open debate. The argument reads in the manner of a geometric theorem and is irrefutable. He understood there were two beings, God the Father and Jesus Christ, and that God's spirit was his power and energy, and hence his explanation for the universal law of gravity, which he said constantly was supplied by God's power. He wrote extensive books on the prophets, especially in Revelation and Daniel. He even wrote about the tribes of Israel and the history of the biblical peoples. In Mathematica Principa, Newton made the phrase, Mathematics is the language in which God has written the universe. In other words, he felt that since God, being a being of total logic, and since the universe was physical and spiritually is logically ordered, then God's plan could be mathematically described. He believed the books of the prophets, such as Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation, could be mathematical, anal mathematically analyzed to determine the year of God's intervention and the plan of God revealed. But to the end, even though he wrote over a million words, he was frustrated because the answer was not forthcoming. 
this great mind was not able to decipher the Bible. How was it that we here today at the Feast of Tabernacles, how is it that you and I can understand what the likes of Sir Isaac Newton could not? Though he struggled with all his might for decades, he was unable to solve this question. In the book of John, chapter 6, verse 44, there's a scripture we all know where John says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It's an amazing truth. And even though we read it, it's sometimes hard to grasp. Newton could not discover the secret of the eternal. Who can? And what is the benefit of knowing it? And that scripture in Psalm 25 sometimes overlooked, is in fact one of the most revealing scriptures in all the Bible. And it speaks to us. In verse 12 of Psalm 25, we read, Who is the man who fears the Lord? He shall teach in the way he chooses. In other words, God will choose how he deals with each of us to call us to save our lives. And some he might have to rough up a bit to get our attention. Others he deals with differently as the need arises in order to call who he will. It is, however, contingent on all of us to have a proper fear of God. And if we have that fear of God, he goes on in verse 13 saying, he himself shall dwell in prosperity and his descendants shall inherit the earth. What a promise. The himself here in Hebrew is such that it does not refer to God, but to us who are called. And the one who fears God and responds to God's direction sincerely, his teaching, his correction, will be prosperous, not necessarily monetarily, but in God's spirit and understanding. And prosperous means having been given the opportunity to be a member of the God family and to have your descendants also inherit the earth. What is of more worth than that. And then in verse 14, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Newton searched for that secret all of his life, came close. He was a prosperous man. He was protected by the king when the established church wanted him charged and punished as a heretic in an age when being a heretic was dangerous business. But he died without knowing what you and I are privileged to know. Do we value that covenant, that secret of the eternal that we have received? Do we allow petty concerns and issues to cloud the great truth we're given and permit the cares and lusts and worries of this world to dampen the excitement and joy of knowing the truth of what we are gathered here to picture? Ask yourself. What would Newton have given to know what we hear and sometimes take for granted? In terms of the meaning of the holy days, the Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day, I believe he would have given everything he had. Notice what scripture says about the truths we've received. Turn over to Mark chapter 4, the book of Mark, the fourth chapter, 
And we read here in verse 11, Mark 4, verse 11. And he said to them, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables. And seeing, they may see and not perceive. And hearing, they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven. Not everyone is called in this age. Not yet. They all will be, as we know. But it is a great gift. In Romans chapter 16, Romans the 16th chapter and verse 25. You know, the end of the book of Romans. We read here, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret, kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. You know, we have been given a knowledge of a mystery that is the plan of God. And not only that, we have been made part of that plan. It sounds strange, but notice what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. There's a scripture here that really should blow our mind when we really understand it. In verse 10, he says here, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come. They searched intently with the greatest care, just like Newton. The prophets. Verse 11, Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And notice verse 12. To them it was revealed, not to themselves, but to us, that they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Do we really grasp the meaning of that? The New International Version, which we don't use very often, but in that verse 12, makes a statement here. It says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of these things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. That's staggering. Do we grasp the magnitude of what you and I have been given? Thus we have seen that the truth of God's plan, the knowledge of the meaning of the Feast of Tabernacles, for example, is understood only by those who have been motivated by God's Spirit and who have obeyed God. They understand it. Human intellect, even the greatest human intellect, cannot resolve this truth yet it has been handed to us on a silver platter. Do we treasure it? Even Newton realized, however, that God's law was essential in God's plan and intent for mankind to have a better life. And do we value the elements, the elements of God's law that will actually make the promise of the beautiful world of the millennium a reality? 
You know, we have heard many times the descriptions the Bible gives of the beautiful world that will result from the rule of Christ and his brothers and sisters on this earth during the millennium. It will be better than it is now. But why is that the case? What makes the difference? Mr. Herbert Armstrong coined a phrase once that I must admit I have plundered and used many times in my work especially when people are looking for a solution to a given set of problems. The phrase, I believe, is a very profound statement, yet very simple. He used to say, and I quote, there is a cause for every effect, unquote. People often want to analyze symptoms, but not causes. However, with this world as it is, and we know it's a living nightmare for many of the 7 billion people that inhabit this planet, to change uh, to what is described in the millennium, how is that going to happen? Today, our world is filled with hatred. It's filled with lies, war, greed, immorality, and an utter despising of God's law. If we think in Canada or the United States and Europe that we're living in God-fearing nations, we are dreaming in technicolor. Divorce, Broken homes, the drug crisis, personal bankruptcies, national debts, in addition to crime, are devastating our peoples. There are huge issues. Declining birth rate is an enormous issue economically, demographically. Our ability to produce workers is threatened. And there are issues with many young workers who don't want to be productive, who don't want to go the extra mile for their employer. You know, many parts of the world, disease and war are taking a huge toll, along with corruption and other evils. God's commandments seem to have no place in our lands, in our churches, our courts, or our schools. And these are the causes of the problem. But in the world to come, that is pictured by the feast, these problems will disappear, and a different world emerges. What causes that change? Why will the world of the millennium be different? Well, we know Satan won't be around. The Day of Atonement teaches us that. And that God's new family will be guiding everyone with wisdom and God's spirit. And that spirit will be readily available. But we must not overlook another factor. And that is the impact of the way of life that God has ordained forever. A set of laws that defines the very mind of God. How we should act, how we should think his attitude, his infinite logic, his intelligence. God's law defines God's culture, which is very different than the cultures of this world. God's law literally changes the way we think. Sometimes we forget that. It's very, very true and very important. It causes our minds to start to look at the world through God's eyes, thus creating wisdom in us. You know, over in Psalm 119, 119 Psalm, which is the longest chapter in the Bible, and it is a psalm just really about God's law. And in verse 97, what does David write? David, a man after God's own heart. What does he write? He says, Oh, how love I your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commands, make me wiser than my enemies. That's an interesting statement. For they're ever with me. 
I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. In verse 129, he goes on, he says, Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. And the entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Do you want to become wiser? Do you want to become smarter? Study God's law and implement it. It's a promise in the Bible. Now, the whole law is too big a subject for one sermon. But I'd like to take a look today at some aspects of the law that will actually cause it to be a brighter tomorrow. It is my hope that this might lead you to study more of the laws of God, his statutes, his judgments, that God has preserved in the Bible, laws, statutes, and judgments that you will implement a few years from now. So we should know them. You know, to be a king in ancient Israel, one of the jobs the king had was to actually physically, when he became king, to write out the whole law by hand. We're told we're going to be kings and priests. We should know it because you're going to have to implement it. We understand the commandments formulate a basic constitutional outline of God's law. The statutes, the other laws and judgments show how that law is interpreted in various situations and how the law can be implemented for man's benefit. You know, how does the law change man's thinking toward his fellow man? So let's look not directly at the commandments, but at some of the statutes that flow out from those commandments and see how they're applied. And the statutes are regulations based on law. You know, in organizations or in government, you have policies which are sweeping generalizations of where you want to go. And based on those policies, they have regulations or administrative regulations, and then you have guidelines beyond that so that the interpretation of how these laws work is reasonably clear. So in the remaining part of the sermon, I would like to take a look at seven of these statutes or judgments that both set some general principles for how we are to live and also will be the rules that you will use to govern the people of the earth in the time you're picturing here today. In a way, the Feast of Tabernacles is an ideal time to review God's law. Notice one scripture over in Deuteronomy chapter 31, book of Deuteronomy, which was a restatement of the law prior to Israel going into Egypt, but or not into Egypt, <laughs> into, into the promised land. Uh, in verse 10, it says uh, here in verse 10, and Moses commanded, them saying, at the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather together the people, men and women, little ones, and the stranger who's within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God 
as long as you live in the land which you crossed Jordan to possess. You know, there was to be no ignorance of the law. Ignorance of the law was never to be an excuse. They were to hear it. So in a limited time available, let's take a look at a few examples of how this law makes a change in the heart and the mind if it is properly observed, as you will teach a few years from now. If this were kept, just imagine how different the world would be. The first item are laws related to honesty. You know, most of us understand that honesty is defined by the ninth commandment, that we're not going to have false witness. It's not allowed. But we will acknowledge that problems occur in governance of our nation, in governance of our homes, in how we relate to other people, when honesty and integrity are not driving principles. God understood that. You know, we all know the commandment against lying. It's very clear. But there are many other laws and statutes based on that commandment as well. Notice for a moment over in Exodus chapter 23, Exodus, the 23rd chapter, and verse 1. It says here, you shall not circulate a false report. That is a rumor or a false story. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. We aren't to be pressured to do something dishonest. I often think of uh, the words of an Englishman after whom the state of Pennsylvania is named, William Penn, when he was called before the king at one point, And uh, the king wanted him, I think, to compromise in some area. And William Penn, a man not in God's church, but a man of great principle, made a statement back to the king, and he said, you know, right is right if everyone is against it. And wrong is still wrong if everyone is for it. King had nothing to say and let him go. That's the way God wants us to be in that aspect, that honesty is expected from all of us who are called, and honesty will be expected in the millennium. Honesty was expected and is expected in all proceedings of the nation. God understood that false witnesses had to be removed from society, as Deuteronomy 19, which we'll look at later, points out, and that people would be forced to pay compensation for injustice that they were intending to do. There is no tolerance in God's system for lies. None. Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, verse 35 Leviticus 19, verse 35, it says, You shall do no injustice in judgment, in measurement of length, weight, or volume. You will have honest scales, honest weights, an honest ephah, an honest hin, talking about their measurements. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe my statutes and all my judgments 
and perform them. I am the eternal, he says. Can you imagine a world where everyone <laughs> was absolutely honest, where there were no merchants trying to cheat you? Everyone could be trusted. That will be the law in the millennium, and it will be enforced. You know, the truth will be the law. Anything I should know about this house before I buy it from you? Oh, yes, yes. Here's a list of things that need to be fixed, right? And this is what it'll cost to fix them. I'm not sure that happens today. It will be in the time that we're here to represent. Justice will be possible. Peace of mind will result. No lies, no deception, no false advertising. I think that qualifies under the name of freedom. That's liberty. What about a second area? What about theft? Is theft a problem? Seventh commandment says we shall not steal. In the city where I live, Edmonton, Alberta, in Canada, it's a city of about a million people, there are about at least 30 car thefts a day, hundreds of break-and-enters a week, credit card fraud, bank card fraud, on and on. That's probably the same everywhere else. We have locks. Uh, we have uh, a lot of security issues. Police feel overwhelmed. Punishment is often inconsistent and uh, all too often too lenient. What is the law that you'll be called on to enforce to change all that? Well, if you go to Exodus, back to Exodus chapter 22. Interesting the way God thinks. So different than the way man thinks. What do we do to people who steal today? We put them in jail. So they can't work and we have to pay for them. Exodus 22, verse 1. If a man steals an ox, now an ox was the equivalent of a tractor in those days. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. That's interesting. If you go on in verse 4, if the thief is certainly found, uh, if the theft is found alive in his hand, whether it's an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he'll restore double. Now, what's the implication? The thief is not put in prison, but he pays. And you'll find there are other laws that if he cannot pay, he is sold as an indentured servant or a slave until he pays off the debt. That's a disincentive to steal. Let's put it in modern terms. If someone stole your car, chopped it up for parts, and sold it all, when he's caught, in the millennium he will be caught, he has to restore five cars to you. If it was part of your livelihood that you used to make your living, if it wasn't, he'd have to restore four cars, or the value of four cars. You know, if you found the car and it wasn't harmed, he has to give it back, plus the value of another one of equal value. You see, God understands the heart of man. 
and the government of God will enforce that law. And as a result, I can predict there will be very little, if any, theft. It's too expensive to steal. You're actually forced to work your way out of the result of theft, which could take years. Sin costs. If you steal my tractor, a small tractor nowadays is worth around $100,000, and I don't get it back, and you're caught, you have to replace five tractors. That could be expensive. You see, with that law in place, there'd be very little need for locks. Everyone would be leaving their keys in their vehicles, especially if they're getting a bit old. God understands what works with the heart of man. Is the punishment hard on the thief? Absolutely. But the rest of society can live in peace and safety. And that is why there'd be no fear in the millennium. That's freedom. That's liberty. What about respect for the elderly? There's a fifth command that says, Thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother. One of the great problems in this age in which we live is a failure to pay proper respect to one's parents and grandparents or the elderly in general. This is a great evil in God's sight. And it undermines one of the fundamental basis for stability in society. There must be respect for those who have made past effort on our behalf. The fifth commandment talks about this and orders, doesn't suggest, it orders people to respect and honor their parents. It is interesting, as Paul says, it is the only commandment with a promise attached. Promise is long life. In reality, when we understand this commandment to honor one's physical parents and grandparents, it also includes our heavenly parent, our heavenly father promise attached to that is very long life, eternal life. Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 1. Here it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the children of the, all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, clean, is what it means. For I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and father and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. It's interesting. He puts the Sabbath in there with honoring parents because that's, of course, how we honor our heavenly parent. Exodus 21 shows God takes this very seriously. Exodus 21, verse 15, it says, And he who strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. God takes it seriously. By extension, the law has another statute. In Leviticus 19, verse 32, we read, You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. I am the Lord. Do you know that's not a suggestion? That's a statute. It's a holy law of the Creator that He expects us to perform, whether society likes it or not. 
This creates respect for what people have done to help build a better place for us. To honor the aged is an order from the Creator. That'll be enforced in the millennium. Do we do this? Do we teach it to our children? Disrespect for parents manifests itself in people doing things that bring a hurtful reputation on parents and family. It is a refusal to take advice from people who have learned through past experience. It hurts and destroys, and God will not tolerate that. And if there are people who don't like that law, they either better get with the program or they will not be in the kingdom of God. This law will make a difference, a huge difference in happiness, contentment, stability, and order in society. And it will be a contributor to wealth and to prosperity. That's freedom, liberty. What about health? You know, that's also a topic for a whole sermon. But there are statutes about health in the Bible. Just quickly, we understand that God is concerned about our health and gave us instruction that would assist us in keeping our bodies in reasonably good form and condition and also our homes. You may read scriptures about washing of dishes, burying human refuse. God even gives a whole chapter in Leviticus chapter 13 on contagious diseases and the principle of quarantine. And that modern medicine, after scorning, is now coming back to. There's a whole chapter in Leviticus 14 on dealing with molds and mildew that people sort of weren't too concerned about. It's interesting, in the last 20 years, man is finally cluing in to the danger of molds. And for centuries, man ignored the law. Today, I know in the Alberta school system, millions of dollars are spent every year now on mold abatement. It's a serious thing, dangerous stuff. But 3,500 plus years ago, God was having Moses write about it and create a building code to take care of molds. That will be in place in the millennium for our health. Leviticus 19, verse 28. It reads here, You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you says the Lord. The modern fashion of tattoos are prohibited in God's law. This is a serious source of infection, as well as a scar on the body that is the temple of God's spirit. There will be no tattoos in the kingdom. And if someone has come into the church and a tattoo is obtained before you knew about the law, well, we go from where we are. We just don't get any more. But it's interesting how God forbid this practice for the sake of health and respect for the body. You know, a scarred body could not enter the temple compound if you read some of the laws. There will also be food laws in the millennium. And uh, people won't be eating what is unclean or never intended to be eaten. Of course, we're not going to read all of Leviticus 11 at this time on clean and unclean foods, but God expects that we all obey it and that we teach other nations to obey it in the millennium. And it will lead to a healthier world, a better world. 
And I could go on a lot about that, about the effect of our seas on taking out uh, so many crustaceans. Uh, the Scripps Institute of Oceanography in California have linked that directly to unhealthy fish populations. It's going to be stopped. I've traveled to many different countries in Asia and Europe and uh, have had many unfortunate close encounters with food of the unclean kind. Um, there was a steamed sliced jellyfish that I was once uh, accosted with in, in Shanghai. Uh, it was a real delicacy of the region, specially ordered for me. Um, but it was not without some effort that I avoided any of it, and I did. I had a near miss with roast donkey in another area. But, you know, I couldn't eat it. And I, and all of us, we can't worry about offending someone. Do we fear God or man? We try to explain politely, respectfully, and normally that's, that's all that matters. God must be first. And the point is, people mean well, they haven't yet been taught. But it's our job to teach them in the world to come. All these laws are for man's benefit. And we can read in the scripture that in the millennium, the laws are followed, there will be no disease. What's that worth? That's freedom. That's liberty. What about honoring God's intention for marital relations? The sixth commandment. And one of the great problems in our society today is immorality. Or rather, I would call it amorality. I think for the majority of Canadians under the age of 30, there's almost no concept of right or wrong in terms of such behavior. Anything goes. They're oblivious to the social, societal devastation that is occurring. You see, there's not only a war against marriage. That's one thing. But the real war is against the role of wife. That's a real target of Satan the devil. And that undermines so much of the stability and security and peacefulness that God intended for man. Not only that, but as I mentioned before, in North America and parts of Europe, you have birth rates at historic lows. We can't replace our populations properly to ensure that suitable numbers of workers are available in the future to perpetuate economic stability. Nations like Spain, Italy, and Japan actually have declining populations. Germany is at near zero growth. And much as the result of people living together outside of marriage and not having children or else terminating thousands of pregnancies through abortion. People today persist in a way of life that is actually putting at risk the survival of their nations. Such is the selfishness that pervades our culture. There are many prophecies in the Bible that speak of the results of this problem. It's tearing our society apart but it will be fixed. It will be repaired. And the millennium will be a stable and happy time. But how can there be laws that can deal with this? Man can't seem to devise them on his own. Well, look at Deuteronomy 22. There are, as it says in the old movies, we have ways and means. But chapter 22 of the book of Deuteronomy, verse 22 we see here 
If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall put away evil from Israel. God took it seriously then, and so should we and our children. He's trying to prevent hurt to individuals and the nation. It was a serious matter. But you know, there's another interesting law that we will enforce, and that would really change practices today, because it hits people where they don't want to be hit, in the pocketbook. This is a very interesting one. You know, David used to say in in, in the scriptures, I marvel at the wisdom of your laws. Well, here's an example that will address to a great extent the issue of immorality. Exodus chapter 22. Exodus 22 and verse 16. It says, If a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed, so she's not assigned to anyone, she's not spoken for, and he lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. Now, many today this would think this law is pretty archaic, repressive. But you think for a moment. Under this law, if a man enticed a young lady into an improper relation, he just got himself a wife with all the legal and financial responsibilities that go with it. Additionally, the custom of the bride price was for the purpose of ensuring the man was financially able to look after the lady. Now, most often the bride price was negotiable, but not in this case. The father of the bride now had all the advantage. Not only could he demand the full, full bride price, if he was okay with his daughter marrying the fellow, but if he did not want this man to marry his daughter, if he thought he was a real ne'er-do-well and his daughter wasn't going to be marrying him, he would still charge the bride price. And if he couldn't pay, well, you're sold as an indentured slave until you pay it. God understands the heart of man. You want to control a situation? Here's one of the means of doing it. Again, we'd have a lot of people today upset at this law, but they better get used to it. It is perfectly logical and teaches responsible behavior. As David said, he marveled at the wisdom of God, and this law is an example of a law that is encouraging the principle of think before you act. Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 3. Leviticus 18 and verse 3, here we read, You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Eternal. None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. Here begins a set of laws that covers the subject of who one can and cannot marry based on family relations. The law prevents genetic diseases and mutations that can occur from 
people marrying uh, too closely uh, to relatives. It's also intended to reinforce the sanctity of the family relation and respect for senior members of the family. And it covers a lot of other behaviors that the Bible considers are deviant. For example, Leviticus 18 and verse 22. It says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination, nor shall you mate uh, with any animal to defile yourself with it. These were equivalent in God's sight. Bestiality or homosexual behavior will not occur in the millennium. This is a particularly dangerous practice in the eyes of Scripture. And it is wrong, and there are no exceptions regardless of what society says. Society's gone off the deep end on this one, replete with the scientifically incorrect notion that, well, you know, people are born that way. That is not true. There is no evidence for that. With God's law in place, the millennium will see this as no longer a problem. It won't be an issue. I'm often amazed at people in our society trying to promote this type of behavior We try to get people to quit smoking. Why? Because we call it a high-risk behavior. And yet, another very high-risk behavior we try to promote. It is very inconsistent. But this, with other laws of family relations, will make this a more beautiful world, a happier world, a stable world. That's freedom, and that is liberty. What about courts and the legal system? We often criticize our legal system because it does have some grave problems. Nonetheless, injustice often is a hallmark of it. Great inconsistencies in judgment. And I'm sure we'd all have stories to tell about that. But what will be the court system in the millennium? Now, I think modern law associations and bar associations, crown prosecutors or district attorneys, as you have in the United States, and especially the human rights activists, are at first going to have an issue with the system God has devised. But in time, even they will see the perfect wisdom of it. God takes it very seriously. Deuteronomy 17 is something that you will implement as governors in the millennium. Deuteronomy 17. This this was to apply in the Old Testament, although it's doubtful if it was ever fully implemented. But it will apply in the time ahead. Verse 8 of Deuteronomy 17. We read here, If a matter arises which is too hard for you to judge, if the local individuals who are to judge different things couldn't figure it out, if a matter arises which is too hard for you to judge between degrees of guilt for bloodshed or between one judgment and another, or between one punishment or another, matters of controversy within your gates, then you shall arise and go up to the place where the Lord your God chooses. Now, this could be the physical priesthood that's in the millennium, or it could be coming before members of the family of God. And verse 9, And you shall come to the priests, the Levites, and to the judge there in those days, and inquire of them, And they shall pronounce upon you sentence of judgment. But note, and you shall do according to the sentence which they pronounce upon you in the place which the Lord chooses. And you shall be careful to do according to all they order you 
to do. According to the sentence of the law in which they instruct you, according to the judgment which they tell you, you shall do. And you shall not turn aside to the right hand or the left hand from the sentence which they pronounce upon you. And the man who acts presumptuously and will not heed the priest or who stands to, stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. And you will put away evil from Israel. It's very interesting. Now, it may not actually have to get that far in the millennium, but the issue is here that judgment will be 100% correct. 100% of the time. No endless appeals, tying up the courts, creating huge legal bills, no absurd lawsuits, righteous judgment. There will be peace and order and righteous judgment as well as respect and fear of the law. The innocent will never be found guilty and the guilty will never be found innocent. People will be afraid to lie, for instance. Notice Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. It says here, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter will be established. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both the men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then, verse 19, you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother, and you shall put away evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not commit any such evil among you. And then, of course, it gives you the principle in verse 21. Your eye shall not pity. Life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, this was never implemented, as far as we can tell, where actually if you caused an injury of a person deliberately or accidentally and they lost a hand, you didn't have a hand chopped off. That was more of an Islamic um, interpretation of this. In truth, the way we understand this is there was just compensation. These were Israelites we're talking about here. <laughs> and uh, so there was value placed. And there was compensation. And that goes along with the entire indentured servant uh, aspect of the law that if someone did something like this and they couldn't pay, then they would work until they did pay it off. But this is the word of Jesus Christ who stated he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this law will encourage people to consider the consequence of actions. There will not be any litany of lame excuses that someone gets off for doing something wrong. There will just be comp proper compensation. There will be peace, order, and respect. You will be able to trust, and you will not fear. And that is why the prophets say, you can sit under your fig tree, and no one will make you afraid. That is peace. That's freedom. And that's liberty.
Finally, there's the whole issue of personal accountability and mercy. This is a big part of the law. It goes along with all the last six commandments. If anything is missing in our modern society is the concept of personal accountability and the idea that we are responsible for all of our actions and our words and we should be looking out for the good of all. So that's how we love our fellow man after all. So how does the law teach this principle? Well, there's many examples. Exodus chapter 22 verse 5 is a bit, I guess you'd call this case law in, um, in uh, Scripture. But Exodus 22, verse 5 says, If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. The principle here, we are accountable for what we do with the things under our control. There was restitution. Uh, there were other laws. Exodus 22, verse 14. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or dies, the owner of it not being with it, he will make it good. You have responsibility. Verse 22. There's responsibility to show mercy and kindness. This is legislated by God. Verse 22 of Exodus 22. It says here, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If, they, if you afflict them in any way, any way, and they cry to me, I will hear their cry. Verse 24, and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. That seems that God takes it seriously if we abuse people, if we're not fair and kind. How do we treat people who are weaker or less fortunate? Verse 25, it says, If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you will not be like a moneylender, and you will not charge him any interest. There was no interest on money that was loaned to someone because they had a sudden serious need and that's a principle of scripture mercy is a legislated requirement in the law of God that is a principle of God's way of life his mind his thinking and then we come to laws that are clearly of the heart this is these are spiritual laws Notice Exodus 23, verse 4. This is Old Testament, <laughs> but of course, inspired by the same person who is Jesus Christ. It says, if you meet your, in verse 4 of Exodus 23, if you meet your enemy's ox, not your friend's ox, your enemy's ox, or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. Verse 5, if you see the donkey of one who hates you, lying under its burden and you refrain from helping it you shall surely help him with it it's a command and when you analyze it the law of god that you will implement removes 
the cause of hatred. It places the law on a spiritual level. It is on a spiritual level. Leviticus 19, verse 17. Leviticus 19, verse 17. It's another example of that. This is how we should be thinking in our day-to-day lives as well as people with God's Spirit. Verse 17 of Leviticus 19, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear a grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus quoted that. These are principles of law that you will see enforced and you will teach and you will guide people and it will make a better world. We're expected to keep our word. We are accountable, as Christ said, for every idle word. There's even laws, I won't have to take the time to turn there, but in Deuteronomy 22.8 where you had to build a fence around the roof to make sure no one fell off. That was like an early occupational health and safety legislation. You know, again... God will make a difference in the hearts of men, as David wrote in Psalm 119 that we looked at earlier. You know, we were told that every seven years people would come before the Feast of Tabernacles and they'd have a review of of God's law. We, We do that sort of all the time now. But in Deuteronomy 15, there's another interesting little statement here. Deuteronomy 15 Because the law was also a law of enforced generosity. Because God the Father is very generous. And he wants us to think that way. Notice verse 1 of Deuteronomy 15. It says, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debt. And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. And he shall not require it of his neighbor or brother because it is the Lord's release. That's part of the Jubilee cycle every seven years. And then, of course, it happened again on a major scale in the 50th year. And verse 7, it says, If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of your gates in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand to your poor brother, but you will open your hand wide to him. Not a suggestion. It's an order. And lend him sufficient for his needs. Now, of course, this is barring some other issues where people aren't trying, etc. But it says, whatever he needs. But verse 9 is what I want you to note. Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart saying, the seventh year, the year of release is at hand. Hey, wait a minute. Uh, In a few months, it's going to be the year of release. I'm never going to get my money back if I loaned you money now. It says, Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart saying, The seventh year, the year of release is at hand, and your eye be evil. The expression, an evil eye, means stingy. It's an idiom from Hebrew. And your eye be evil against your brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you, and it becomes sin, or be considered sin among you. You shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him, even though you know you're not getting it back. Because for this thing, 
The Lord will bless you in all the works and in all which you put your hand to do. God backs up his law. You are never cursed for obeying God's direction. And that's a promise of God. It's a great promise of God. And God's looking to see if that's our heart, if we're merciful and kind and obedient and live in the spirit of the holy law of God that will make this a much better world. God legislates a generous heart and he backs it up. We could go on about the many economic laws that God has, but that's a subject for other sermons. You know, we've just scratched the surface on God's holy law. Now, we can read this law. To us, it makes sense because God's spirit has opened our mind. And to the world at this time, it seems madness, a threat to the very way they want to live and the way they want to do business even though the world is collapsing around them. But as we read in Psalm 25 and verse 14, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show you his covenant. And he has given that covenant. He has opened our eyes to understand that covenant. The secret of the knowledge of the Lord, the gospel of the kingdom, has been given to us. And we who were once doing our own thing and then for reasons unbeknown to us were called of God. I trust we value that calling and treasure it and study the Bible with the same zeal that Isaac Newton did. He sought for something he was not allowed to find. He wasn't called at that time. He will be. And I'm sure he'll rejoice. But we have been given a very great gift. And part of that gift is the ability to understand what James called the great law of liberty. To learn it now, to be ready to apply it, and watch the blessings from God that will accrue to this earth as people learn to live according to the laws of the mind of God. And they bring to fruition the glory of the kingdom of God. We all need to take some time and delve into the statutes which you will implement as part of the government of God. And that's why in the book of Micah, it describes what the world would be like. Not only will Satan not be there, God's spirit everywhere, and it'll be ruled by Jesus Christ and his family, but it will also have righteous law and righteous judgment. That's why it says in Micah 4, verse 2, Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and neither shall they learn war <coughs> anymore. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. 
we understand only because of God's mercy and his reason for giving us a special calling and understanding of truths that are utterly amazing. So let his holy law, which will be implemented by God's spirit-born children, kings and priests, as they guide the world to developing God's culture. And let's take the time to learn that law and build a zeal to support God's work every day and help our minds become aligned with our fathers and work so that other people can be also called and appreciate the treasure that has been given to us. You know, Sir Isaac Newton, with all his intellect and all his mental power, tried all his life to learn what you and I have been freely given. I dare say that none of us put the effort into it that Newton did. Yet for God's own reasons, those God selected and called in this age, you and I, know and understand what Newton did not. What would Newton give to know these things? Likely everything he had. So I trust we value the secret of the eternal that has been given to us. And these holy days, we have the honor and privilege to observe.